whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children cannot be my disciple. I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome my mother, my stepfather, <laughs> my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, and my wife and children. Remember, if we get into a fight, Jesus told me to hate you. <laughs> Two houses down from my own, there is a cute cottage-style house with light blue paint and a curving roof line. In the front yard, there is a beautiful jacaranda tree. The house is picturesque. Almost. The house is so close to being the image of domestic tranquility, if not for the piles of rubble, stone, and dirt that are in the front yard piled high. At first glance, you would think that the owner is in the midst of a landscaping project. Great. However, having been in the neighborhood for three years now, I understand that the house has been completely unchanged for the better part of a decade. <laughs> And this unfinished motif is not exclusive to the landscaping. There are two inoperable vehicles in the driveway. One is a small car on cinder blocks and covered with a tarp. The other is uh, the same make and model of the sketchy van that the, the, the owner of the house drives, but it, it appears to not have moved for the last 20 years. <laughs> There's a lot of unfinished business at that house and it taints the neighborhood. Unfinished business. That is the theme of today's gospel reading. Jesus equates half-hearted discipleship to starting a job and not finishing or waging a war without considering the consequences or the likelihood of defeat. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to finish the job, to carry your own cross, to give up your wealth and possessions, your comfort for the sake of loving God and neighbor. Okay. That alone would be challenging, right? But then, Jesus asks his followers to hate their family, their loved ones, and even life itself. If God is love, and God is love, how can following God make us hate? Hate, it's such a horrible word. As Mary Beth teaches our kids, we don't say hate, right? We don't even say it in our house. Hate is one of those powerful words that trigger the worst in us. So why does Jesus use it? In the early 90s, the band Nirvana went from being a young Seattle band to being a household name. Stay with me if you think this is a tangent. <laughs> Their record, Nevermind, was expected to sell a maximum, a maximum of 200,000 copies if they were being outlandish over the entire time of the album's existence. 
By Christmas of 1991, it was selling 400,000 copies a week. It eventually sold three, uh, 30 million copies worldwide and counting. Nirvana went from playing small clubs to playing stadiums. And by all accounts, the band was unhappy with their newfound success, be it from intimidation of the scale of their success or disdain at the people claiming to be their fans. Kurt Cobain, the band's frontman and songwriter, did not like all these folks hopping on the bandwagon. So what did he do? He wrote and released a song whose name I will spell for the sake of any children that might be within earshot. It is called R-A-P-E, Me. In his first interview about the song on MTV, Cobain said, this song is not, not, not about the term that I will say, sexualized violence, using, he used the term from the title. He said, I got tired of people thinking they understood my lyrics and bringing their own meaning to it. So I decided to be blunt and bold. In short, Kurt Cobain wanted to slim down the crowds. Not unlike Jesus. How does today's gospel passage start? Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, hate. I believe Jesus is using hyperbole. Jesus has done this before. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Again, Jesus is not demanding that we participate in self-mutilation, but he's using symbolic hyperbole on par with Kurt Cobain. This form of hyperbole is common in the so-called Q source, the sayings of Jesus that appear in Matthew and Luke's Gospels but are absent in Mark. The Q source, has anybody heard of this before? There we go. Matthew softens the language down in Matthew 10.37, calling his followers to love God more than their parents or children. This term, hate, or meseo, mese in Greek, is unique to Luke. And most scholars consider it to be original to this Q source. Just as Rape Me is an anti-rape song, this passage is an anti-hate passage. Jesus is saying, don't let anything keep you from loving God and neighbor. Love meaningfully. Love purposefully. Don't love like an unfinished yard or a car that won't start or somebody new to a band. Love with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Why would that mean hating your relationships, your possessions, your life? In the same way that addiction can cloud our judgment and distort regular interactions and dominate our behavior, obligations to family, concerns about wealth, and fear for our own lives can keep us from going where love leads us, from finishing the job of loving God and neighbor. Jesus is saying, don't let your relationships keep you from loving, from making a love-spreading difference in the world. Franciscan author Richard Rohr would call this non-duality. Relationships, possessions, identity, affiliations, these things can draw a line in the sand say, and say either or. 
you're with us or against us. You, you, can, you have to either stay serving us or being with us or not. Rohr says that Jesus' ministry is always striving to include and transcend. Include the marginalized, include the other, and transcend those barriers, and transcend that dualistic thinking. When many of us read this passage, we think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship, which contrasts cheap grace of mass religion with costly grace of true Christian discipleship, which always leads to the cross. Many of us also think of Bonhoeffer's own death at the hands of the Nazis as a result of his participation in the assassination attempts on Hitler. But the German title of his work was not the cost of discipleship. I'm going to butcher this word, but it was Nachfolge. Following. Following was the title of this book. The title was poignant for its double entendre. Following Jesus contrasts with following or going along with the crowd. In the years following World War, after World War II, humanity was left wondering, how did this happen? How did this go on? How did Hitler inspire a nation to go along with the Holocaust? How did it happen? It happened because people followed. They followed orders. They followed their relationships. In our country, in our time, political parties have led us to an unchristlike division. They have kept us from following Christ, kept us from fulfilling our baptismal covenant to respect the dignity of every human being. Nothing should impede that. Nothing should impede our call to respect our neighbors, to love our neighbors, to include and transcend. Giving up those affiliations, those identities, those relationships that keep us from loving our neighbors is really hard. It is a sacrifice, a cross to bear the death, the loss of part of ourselves. As Deuteronomy 30 says from the Old Testament today, anything that directs us away from following love, from finishing the work of loving God and neighbor, leads to death and adversity. Not death like the cross, not adversity like the path to the cross or suffering, but death like necrosis, slowly rotting, and adversity like swimming against love's stream, like rejecting the way of love. There's so many ways to get off track from this God-love life, so many seemingly good reasons not to follow Jesus to the cross. Like a car on blocks in our front yard, that unfinished business can color our lives, our homes, and our relationships. As Moses says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life. Choose Jesus. Choose to include and transcend by following the path of the cross. Choose the flow of love eternal now and always. Amen.